from WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Today, we'll talk about the January 6th committee's work with Luke Broadwater, who covers Congress for the New York Times. He was in the Capitol on the day of the assault and has reported on the committee's work from the beginning. Also, we'll hear from Robert Gottlieb, one of the most important book editors of our time. He's worked with such authors as Toni Morrison, John Le Carre, John Cheever, Bill Clinton, Nora Ephron, and Lauren Bacall. A new documentary is about his 50-year, sometimes contentious relationship with author and journalist Robert Caro. And John Powers will review Noah Baumbach's new film, White Noise, an adaptation of the Don DeLillo novel of the same name. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Friday marked the second anniversary of the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol, when supporters of Donald Trump stormed the building and fought with police. If you watched the hearings of the Congressional Committee that investigated the attack, you saw its members and witnesses present a compelling chronicle of Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the result of the 2020 presidential election. Over the past two weeks, the committee has issued its final report, more than 800 pages long, and released thousands of pages of witness interview transcripts and other material. Besides the recommendation that the Justice Department charge Trump with felony offenses, the new material adds detail to the story told in the hearings. There's new information about pressure brought to bear on a key witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, for example, and nuggets such as the fact that Trump at one point wanted to trademark the phrase rigged election. To take stock of the committee's work and consider what lies ahead, we turn to Luke Broadwater, who covers Congress for the New York Times. He was at the Capitol when the assault occurred and has reported extensively on the investigation into Trump's efforts to reverse the results of the election. He wrote the introduction to the edition of the January 6th report published by 12 Books, which includes reporting analysis and visuals from the New York Times. Before Luke Broadwater joined the Times, he spent a decade at the Baltimore Sun, where he was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Local Reporting and a George Polk Award for Political Reporting. Luke Broadwater, welcome back to Fresh Air. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to begin by talking about some of the material that you and your colleague Robert Draper wrote about in the process of the committee, how it did its work. Um, It, of course, hired a lot of top-notch investigators, many of them former federal prosecutors. But the members also thought early about the televised presentation of the material, and they hired – an experienced TV reporter, the former president of ABC News, James Goldston. Um, what uh, what was it like when he got there and looked at, you know, the material, the process, the possibilities for making this an effective TV presentation? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, at first he says, basically, I can't do this, not without a team. And there's a bit of a disagreement, but eventually the chair and the vice chair of the committee, Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney, approve a small team that he can have that will essentially be a makeshift studio to help put on these hearings. And he brings in some top people that he used to work with before. And even though it's this skeleton crew, they get to work. And they start going through all the videos and they're working closely with the staff and they start picking out some key moments. I mean, people remember things like Josh Hawley running from the mob or the colorful language used by some of the Trump attorneys, or 
you know, just how close uh, the mob came to Mike Pence. These are all things that they were learning through this process and then flagging. They called them hot docs and then uh, sending them to James Goldston and getting them into the scripts and then eventually out to the viewing public. So it was very much, very much an intense scramble. You know, we talked to some uh, investigators who stayed up all night, didn't sleep for days. uh, So people getting two or three hours of sleep a night, but eventually pulled off these hearings that they believe made a huge impact on the public. Well, one of the things that really makes these hearings different from any other congressional hearing that certainly I've ever ever seen is that pretty much everything that the committee member said was scripted and performed, essentially, read from a teleprompter. Was that uh, <laughs> James Goldston's, the ABC News guy's decision? How, how did the members react to that idea? Yeah, so at first there was a bit of consternation from at least one or two members who wanted everyone to have their sort of five minutes to talk, which is how a congressional hearing normally works. But I think the committee really came around to the idea quite quickly that it was much easier and simpler to do a streamlined narrative. The whole hearing would be scripted. Um, You know, they did have live witnesses, but they had already interviewed these live witnesses, so they knew roughly what they would say in response to certain questions. And so they asked them questions that they had already been asked in closed-door depositions. So they knew roughly what this person would say. So they were able to rough out these scripts and stick to them pretty pretty religiously. I mean, they would send out scripts to all the television stations about where, you know, where to put this camera at this time, whether there was profanity in this video clip or that video clip. And they kept the hearings pretty tight. Um, the first hearing they put on was only 90 minutes, which is kind of crazy for a congressional hearing. So once the networks heard that these hearings were going to be concise, they were going to be powerful, they were going to be essentially like a scripted event, they were more willing to put them on in prime time. Um, you know, your normal congressional hearing can stretch all day. Hardly anyone watches it. It's a essentially a hot mess. It's Republicans fighting with Democrats, Democrats fighting with Republicans. Not much gets accomplished. And the public gets bored and changes the channel. In this case, because they were able to do it like mini documentaries, you know, like it was almost a, you know, a 10 part documentary series. Um, They they were able to keep the public's attention and keep the network buy in to showing them some of them in prime time. Right. And and of course, there were actually rehearsals uh, of the committee members before each hearing. And I love this detail that 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 you revealed that they would... The scripts were sent to TV uh, broadcasters, embargoed. They couldn't reveal what's in them yet. But that was so that they could uh, have their camera folks know when to move to which speaker. Uh, that's pretty original, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, I mean, this the extent of coordination with television and the – I guess it, the right word is vision or, or foresight to see television as, as the key medium – for these hearings, I think is unprecedented in congressional history. And when you think about the committee's goal, uh, at least some of the members, like Liz Cheney, their goal was to excise Donald Trump from public life, to make him, based on the evidence they had uncovered, to make him unpalatable to the American public. And what is the medium Donald Trump best understands? It's television, right? His whole career was built on television. And they were able to use that very medium against him and damage him considerably 
in the um, minds of the electorate and in fact damaged many of his supporters and anyone who embraced the so-called big lie about the election. They were tremendously damaged at the, at the ballot box in November. So they were able to turn the tide on you know, the, the master of the apprentice and use his own medium against him um, in part because it was so scripted and it, w- and it was such a clean narrative. And that was perhaps only possible because Republicans appointed by Kevin McCarthy had boycotted the committee and pulled their support. Had they been there, they could have disrupted these meetings. They could have never had these clean narratives on television. But because they didn't participate, uh, the committee was able able to pull these hearings off. And as it as it proceeded, I mean, the production had more entertainment value. And I'm thinking in particularly of the juxtaposition of Josh Hawley, the Republican senator, raising his fist in solidarity with the demonstrators outside the Capitol. And then later, and this took some work to catch him literally running to safety when the attackers reached the Capitol. I mean, it was a very effective little moment and it got laughter in the the chamber. I wonder if there was debate among, you know, among committee members about whether you wanted to be mocking people at that level. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I first saw that, I thought it was a bit gratuitous. But one thing they did in almost every hearing was there was a bit of dark humor, which looking back, I think was somewhat effective. You know, you have these really heavy topics and, you know, like any good TV show or movie that's on a heavy topic, every now and then a bit of humor sort of uh, leads to a more successful mix. It wasn't just Josh Hawley. If you look at like the way they used some clips from Bill Barr, the afor- former attorney general, when you look at how they use some of the um, debates inside the Justice Department, the Eric Hirschman quotes, those would often get laughs inside uh, the committee room. And it, it does feel sort of awkward laughing at such a terrible event. Um, but but I do think they were able to use that uh, to some effectiveness. And I talked with some of the committee about this. And I said, was this just gratuitous, you know, to, to do this thing with Holly? And, and they felt it wasn't and because they felt it actually uh, hit on a, a bigger point. And that was the hypocrisy of the Republicans who engaged in the spreading of the lies about the 2020 election. That some of uh, the Republicans who promoted this stuff – you know, fired up this crowd. They got people really angry, believing a lot of nonsense. And then when it was time for the chickens to come home to roost, so to speak, when the angry crowd burst in the Capitol, they were running in fear just like everybody else. And so, yes, it's funny in the moment, but there's also a bigger point and a more serious point. And that is underscoring this hypocrisy. And and it, and it actually... Um, shows the truth of what happened, right? That these lies do, they, they do result in violence. They do result in really disgusting attacks on democracy. And that's what they wanted to show. And so they didn't feel it was gratuitous, which was my initial reaction to it. Luke Broadwater is a congressional correspondent for the New York Times. He's covered the investigation into the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol and Donald Trump's efforts to reverse the results of the 2020 presidential election. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. 
And John Powers will review Noah Baumbach's new film, White Noise, based on Don DeLillo's novel of the same name. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Friday marked the second anniversary of the assault on the U.S. Capitol by supporters of Donald Trump, who were attempting to prevent the certification of Joe Biden as winner of the 2020 presidential election. We're speaking with New York Times congressional correspondent Luke Broadwater, who was at the Capitol that day and has covered the investigations into the attack and Trump's efforts to overturn the election results. The congressional committee investigating the January 6th attack recently wrapped up its work, releasing a lengthy report and thousands of pages of witness interview transcripts and other material. Liz Cheney threw herself into this investigation, uh, and it had to be weird for her since she's used to working with Republicans in Republican office space and in a Republican world. How did the committee accommodate her interest and make it work for her? Right. Well, so um, Liz Cheney was a surprise pick in the beginning because Speaker Pelosi appointed her to the committee, which is kind of unheard of in Capitol Hill that a Democrat would appoint a Republican. But by that point, she had already become sort of a leading voice against Donald Trump and what he did on January 6th. Now, I think internally among the committee, there was some debate when there was a motion to make her the vice chair. You know, some people on the committee, the Democrats, believed that they recalled her as sort of this vicious partisan fighter against them. And some of them had you know, bad memories of some, uh, you know, really bare-knuckled debates they had had with Liz Cheney over the years. Um, But they all saw what was happening with Liz Cheney, that she had drawn this line in the sand against Donald Trump and and what he stood for on January 6th, and that she was willing to stop it and was nothing to hold him accountable. And so they saw her as very useful to the committee because if they had bipartisan leadership, that would sort of undercut the argument that this was a partisan uh, committee just run by Dem- Democrats and Nancy Pelosi. And Liz Cheney really took her vice chairman role and ran with it. She quickly became probably the biggest single driving force of the investigation and the most intensely aggressive member of the committee. Right. And they gave her this little space that you describe because, uh, you know, office space in the Capitol is not not abundant. Where, where did they put her to work? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So they blocked out some space uh, for Liz Cheney. But a lot of Liz Cheney's work actually took place in uh, what the members call hideaways, which are these little um, uh, – they're almost like little basement offices. You know, if you go in the different members' offices, some of them have, have bars in there or books they wrote or – cool little things they have but they're they're not very spacious they're kind of they're kind of cramped in there and some of the most important interviews the committee did took place in Liz Cheney's hideaway and getting some of the um, key Republican witnesses to come in those talks and discussions happened in Liz Cheney's hideaway so you could kind of see how she was directing things from this you know basement office tucked away in the Capitol Right. And most of the witnesses, as it turned out, were Republicans uh, talking about all this. And I, I assume that had something to do with Liz Cheney and her credibility to get them involved. Right. Yeah. If you look at the public hearings, nearly every person who testifies is a Republican. And that was done for a couple of reasons. One, it, it, um, 
it undercut the argument that this was a partisan witch hunt. If everybody who's testifying against Donald Trump is a Republican, worked for him in the White House, worked in his Justice Department, was a Republican Secretary of State or member of the State House, and these were all the people who were providing the testimony, it's really hard to say that this is a partisan witch hunt. Um, the other point I'd like to make about this is that all the Democrats on the committee say they could not have gotten a lot of those witnesses to come in and cooperate with them had it not been for Liz Cheney, that it was her role as this sort of leading figure in the old, the old Republican Party. You know, her, her dad was the vice president that, gave, that made a lot of Republicans comfortable in being willing to, willing to talk to the committee. Yeah. Do, can you think of an example of her you know, putting in the time and effort to get a reluctant Republican witness to, to tell their story? The, the, the biggest and most important example is uh, Liz Cheney starts bringing in some of these younger you know, 20-something women who worked in the Trump White House. And she's interviewing Sarah Matthews and Alyssa Farah. And they tell her the person you really need to talk to is Cassidy Hutchinson, who I think at that time is 25 years old. And she had been an aide to, to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. And um, Liz, through a series of talking with Cassidy Hutchinson, gets her to come in and testify. She ends up testifying behind closed doors like four or five times with the committee, talks to them repeatedly. And eventually she becomes the only witness that has an entire hearing built around her testimony. And none of that would have happened without Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney kept those interviews very close to the vest. When the other members were told to fly in for this surprise hearing, they didn't know until they got to a secure facility what they were there for, what they were going to hear. And then Liz Cheney uh, presented them with the um, transcript and the evidence uh, from Cassidy Hutchinson for that hearing. So, you know, Liz Cheney was the driving force be behind that hearing and behind getting some of those, you know, younger Republican women inside the Trump White House to cooperate. I want to look at what happens next. Uh, the committee's finished its work, and the Justice Department, you know, is looking into this. There's a special uh, counsel, Jack Smith, and, you know, the Attorney General Merrick Garland has said uh, we will go where the facts lead us. The report, of course, recommends uh, criminal charges against Trump and lays out its case. Um, but I'm wondering what other considerations will the Justice Department take into account? You know, federal prosecutors have discretion. There can be times when... You say, yep, I think that there's a crime here and I think we can prove it. But for other reasons, we're going to choose not to prosecute. What are some of the other considerations that might move the Justice Department one way or the other? Right. Well, of course, they have a much higher standard than what a legislative committee does. You know, the criminal referrals are to investigate Donald Trump and they lay out the evidence that they believe uh, they, they accumulated and the crimes they believe the evidence shows he committed. Uh, but that's really a starting point for the Justice Department's investigation. The Justice Department has to consider, you know, the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt and whether they can convince a jury uh, at that standard to hold a former president of the United States accountable in a criminal way. In addition to the evidentiary, higher evidentiary hurdle, there's also the consideration about politically you know, do we want to be a country that uh, 
where the new administration throws the old administration in jail. You know, we have no we have no precedent for that in America. I think Merrick Garland will be very reluctant to make that new precedent. At the same time, we have no precedent of of former presidents refusing to uh, to concede after they lose an election. So, you know, this whole situation is very unprecedented because of how Donald Trump behaved. Now Merrick Garland is in the situation of does he take an unprecedented step for the Justice Department in terms of charging a past president? And, you know, he's assigned a special counsel, Jack Smith. I think he is taking it very seriously. If if the subpoenas that have gone out in recent weeks are any indication, I know they're seeking to interview people who have been interviewed already by the January 6th committee. And that's been a pattern for a number of months where the January 6th committee will interview somebody, they will make some of that evidence public, and then the Justice Department will call that person in and get the same testimony or maybe expanded testimony themselves in front of a grand jury or to uh, investigators. So the investigation is still quite active, but it is there are huge, huge decisions from Merrick Garland that are both evidentiary in nature and also political in nature. You know, there's, it struck me that there's an irony to this whole situation in that, you know, the committee thinks that Donald Trump's conduct violates the law and he should be charged. But in some ways to me, I mean, the more serious conduct that, that, that he's responsible for is convincing tens of millions of Americans that they can't trust elections, that votes can be stolen in the dead of night despite, you know, any credible evidence that it happened. And that's just so poisonous for a representative democracy. And in a way, it's, it's, it strikes me that there's sort of not any criminal statute that really has the gravity to address that fundamental offense, this body blow to American democracy. It's, it's kind of a mismatch in a way between, you know, the criminal code and what's happened. <laughs> it is true that everything that's bad and a negative force in our politics is not a crime, right? Convincing lots of Americans not to believe in the institutions of the country or maybe not even in democracy anymore, is certainly a dark force in our culture and our society today, but hard to see how it's a crime, right? Lying to voters is not a crime, or it, it never has been to date. And I think that's one of the things the Justice Department has to struggle with, is, is there were a lot of really, really bad actions taken, but they may not violate a criminal statute. And do we want to be a country where we do throw politicians in jail who lie. So those are the type of things that they're thinking about. And, you know, one thing I think they have to consider is that the facts of January 6th aren't really in dispute at this point. I think we know a ton of facts from this committee's investigation. Maybe there are more to find, but we basically know what happened. And now it's a matter of interpreting those facts and applying them to the law and saying, are these facts a crime? Are these facts enough to bring about a criminal conviction? And that's the question they have to wrestle with. Well, Luke Broadwater, thanks so much for speaking with us again. Thanks for having me. Luke Broadwater covers Congress for the New York Times. He covered the investigation into the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol and Donald Trump's efforts to reverse the results of the 2020 presidential election. And he wrote the introduction to the printed edition of the January 6th report published by 12 Books. 
The new film White Noise, now showing on Netflix, is the latest from Noah Baumbach, whose last movie, Marriage Story, was nominated for six Academy Awards. Based on a novel by Don DeLillo, it stars Adam Driver as a professor whose family and friends face all manner of disaster, both personal and public. Our critic-at-large John Powers enjoyed the movie and says he admires Baumbach's attempt to do something new. These are frustrating days for ambitious American filmmakers. Critics and older filmgoers bemoan that our screens offered little more than blockbuster franchises and cheap horror pictures. Yet when directors try to make something different and daring, they usually get thumped if they don't completely succeed. Take the new Netflix film White Noise, the latest film from Noah Baumbach, best known for movies like The Squid and the Whale and Marriage Story. The movie is adapted from Don DeLillo's 1985 novel, a cool, dazzling book shot through with so many shifting ironies that virtually every reviewer has described it as unfilmable. Well, Baumbach has filmed it, and though I can't call his adaptation a triumph, a lot of the reviews strike me as being ungenerous to a brave attempt. White Noise is bursting with fun things to watch. And though the story takes place in the 1980s, it tackles present-day preoccupations, human-caused disaster, media saturation, drug addiction, and consumerism. A deglamorized Adam Driver stars as Jack Gladney, a professor in the popular department of Hitler Studies, a program he invented not because he admires Der Fuhrer, but because Hitler is a strong brand in the intellectual marketplace. He lives in a cozy college town along with his slightly dippy fourth wife, Babette, played by Greta Gerwig with big bouncy curls, and their kids from assorted marriages. Whether the Gladneys are all having breakfast or driving in their station wagon, their scenes crackle with the sometimes inane, sometimes pointed texture of family crosstalk. Their story unfolds in three very different chapters, all tinged with satire. The first part lays out the Gladneys' life. In the second disaster film chapter, a calamitous train wreck menaces their town with a so-called airborne toxic event whose foreboding black cloud forces them to flee to a camp for evacuees. Once that gets sorted out, the noirish chapter 3 tells the story of Babette's use of a mysterious drug called Dilar, and the violence it engenders. While this may make white noise sound dauntingly dark, its default tone is actually jaunty, if ironically so. Baumbach creates scenes that recall popular TV shows like The Simpsons and Stranger Things. And in Don Cheadle's character, a professor named Murray, you get an upbeat version of a Greek chorus who sounds happy as a clam no matter what he's discussing. Here in a class, Murray begins by talking about the death of his specialty, Elvis Presley. And, as in an academic battle of the bands, Jack tries to top him with the fall of Hitler. Elvis fulfilled the terms of his contract. Excess. Deterioration, self-destructiveness, grotesque behavior, a physical bloating, and a series of insults to the brain, self-delivered. His place in legend is secure. He bought off the skeptics by dying early, horribly, unnecessarily. No one could deny him now. His mother probably saw it all as on a 19-inch screen years before her own death. Picture Hitler near the end, trapped in his Fuhrer bunker beneath the burning city. He looks back to the early days of his power when crowds came, 
Mobs of people overrunning the courtyard, singing patriotic songs, painting swastikas on the walls, on the flanks of farm animals. Crowds came to his mountain villa. Crowds came to hear him speak. Crowds erotically charged the masses he once called his only bride. Although Bambach has a real gift for domestic realism, he's always been drawn to the audacity of the French New Wave. He loves its formal iconoclasm and juxtaposition of tones, from the lyrical to the intellectual to the silly. He attempts such a tonal collage here, and I regret to say that his white noise doesn't hold together as well as DeLillo's. In fact, watching White Noise reminds me a bit of watching the work of the New Wave's greatest genius, Jean-Luc Godard, who was, as it happens, a huge influence on DeLillo. Godard's movies always tended to shuffle brilliant scenes with sections that leave you weak with boredom. You get the same unevenness here, but Baumbach is less intimidating than Godard or DeLillo, neither of whom ever worried about making the audience happy. Baumbach keeps white noise on the lighter, less political side of the ledger, as in the joyous supermarket finale that's miles from DeLillo's trademark sense of paranoia and dread. Laced with good jokes, the movie brims with terrific moments, be it Murray's magnificent riff on Hollywood car crashes, which he sees as an expression of American optimism, or the sly sequence at the evacuee camp that seems to come from a missing movie by Baumbach's friend and collaborator, Wes Anderson. Early on, Jack and Babette have a talk in which each admits that they hope they die before the other. It's partly funny, partly not. And it underscores White Noise's obsession with death, the fear of dying, and especially the countless ways we fend off that fear. By turning catastrophes into media spectacles, by reducing the genocidal Hitler to a kind of pop icon, by smoothing ourselves out with dodgy drugs, and by pretending that the disasters we see on TV could never hit us. And if all else fails, the movie assures us, we can always go shopping. John Powers reviewed the new movie White Noise, now streaming on Netflix. Coming up, we hear from Robert Gottlieb, one of the most important book editors of our time. A new documentary called Turn Every Page is about his 50-year, sometimes contentious relationship with writer Robert Caro. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Terry has our next interview, I'll let her introduce it. My guest, Robert Gottlieb, is perhaps the most acclaimed editor of his time. His first real job was at the publishing house Simon & Schuster in 1955. From there, he became the editor-in-chief of the literary publishing house Alfred A. Knopf. Gottlieb has edited scores of books, including fiction, history, biography, and memoir, by such authors as Joseph Heller, Jessica Mitford, Doris Lessing, Toni Morrison, John Cheever, John le Carré, Catherine Graham, Bill Clinton, Nora Ephron, Michael Crichton, and Lauren Bacall. He left Knopf to become the editor of The New Yorker in 1987, taking over from William Shawn, and remained at the magazine for five years. One of the remarkable parts of his career is his more than 50 years and counting as Robert Caro's editor, Caro wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1974 bestseller, The Power Broker, an exhaustive investigation into how Robert Moses reshaped New York City and how he used and abused power. The use and abuse of power is also at the heart of Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson. Caro is writing the fifth and final volume. Gottlieb is waiting to edit it, and they're hoping they're able to finish in time. Caro is 87, Gottlieb 91. 
Their often contentious collaboration is at the heart of the new documentary, Turn Every Page, directed by Lizzie Gottlieb. Robert Gottlieb is her father. Robert Gottlieb, welcome to Fresh Air. I'm glad um, you finally gave Lizzie permission to make this movie. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So Robert Caro's books are about the use and abuse of political power, how powerful people affect the lives of other people for better or worse, such as all the people whose homes were torn down, were destroyed to make way for the highways and expressways that Robert Moses built. Um, What was the power dynamic like in your relationship, since he writes so much about power? uh, What was that power dynamic like between, or I should put that in the present tense because it still exists, what is that power dynamic like? Well, I don't really believe there is a power dynamic between an author and an editor when the relationship is wholesome. Both have to be strong, have strong opinions, and feel free and safe in expressing them in as polite a way as possible. We had disagreements along the way, certainly, and we could both get excited about them or buy them. But on the whole, for 50 years of work, it's been productive, to my mind, pleasant, except when it wasn't, and it's gotten better and better. And in fact, our relationship has gotten better and better through the years. So I can say today, which I could not have said 50 years ago, that we are friends. It must be really hard to tell somebody like Robert Caro, who works so much on every detail, that you know passages or chapters or whole larger sections of the book have to come out because of length. When when Kara spent like so much time working on those passages, so play that out for us. How does that go when you say this really needs to come out? And he says, "I work really hard on this. I think it's important. It needs to stay." Well, it's a very painful process, and Bob talks very tellingly about how painful it was for him. And it was very painful for me, too, because I didn't want to cut all those words because they weren't good or they weren't interesting. I needed to cut them because we couldn't print and bind a book that would accept them all physically. It was not fun, and it was hard, and we both knew it had to be done. And although we might disagree about a given passage or page or even chapter, we agreed that it needed doing. So, both of us being industrious people, we did it. But as I say, it took a year, and I am fast. (laughs) What are the typical things that you fought about? Well, it could be anything. It could be punctuation. It could be... uh, Overusage of a given word. It could be repetitions, because Bob and I, it's not that we disagreed, we, we saw things differently. I, who was reading it and editing it, would see that he would think, feel, I would feel that he had made this point perhaps 20 pages earlier, and he didn't really need to make it again in somewhat different language. He felt he was aware of that. And, but he felt that it was so important that it needed to be stressed through repetition. So he was thinking as a writer, and I was thinking as a reader. That's the way it should be. You had to work on, like, the macro and the micro of, um, That's it. of the power broker. Because on one hand, you're trying to cut, like, 
this huge number of pages. I don't know exactly how, how many. But at the same time, you were, you know, dealing with like commas and semicolons and sometimes had having pretty heated disagreements, as far as I can tell, over whether some, you know, whether there should be a comma or a semicolon. Yes, sometimes, because not everyone sees punctuation the same way. Uh, so I feel, as an editor, it's my job to make the case that I need to make, and then it's his job to eventually agree or disagree. You know, I never cease explaining or telling young people who want to be editors. It's a service job. Our job is to serve the word, serve the author, serve the text. It's not our book. It's not my book. It's his book or her book. But it's a very gratifying job. And I love the editing process. I love it as an editor. And since I've done a lot of writing myself, to my astonishment, I love being edited because it's the process that I like. I don't care whether I'm the editor or the editee. It's fun and it's interesting to see how you can make something that you believe is good even better. Robert Caro is 87. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable asking this, but I'll ask it anyways. <laughs> I'm sure you will. If he doesn't get to finish the book, um, either because of, you know, uh, sickness or, or, you know, forgive me for saying this, if he doesn't survive long enough, if he doesn't live long enough, what happens to the manuscript? What exists of it? He's making arrangements that suit him about that. And it's up to him to explain what they may be. There's nothing I can do. I can't finish it for him, nor would I dare to try. But I imagine from, from his other books that however much he finishes, uh, should something intervene, it will be well worth reading and publishing. How could it not be? Are you in on the process right now as he continues to write? Not at all, nor have I ever been. I've never seen anything of one of his books until it was finished to his satisfaction. You know, we, we were talking a little bit about the dynamics of power. What, one of the many books that you edited was Bill Clinton's memoir. Um, and when you were working with him, and you recount this, I think, in your memoir, um, like he said, we're going to have a good time working together. Ask anyone here. You'll find that I'm good to work for. And you corrected him and said, in this relationship, you're working for me. Well, it wasn't quite that brutal. But it was, first of all, it was in a room filled with people. All his assistants and secretaries and who knows who else. And there was little me. So what he said was, I think he said something like, ask any of these people who work for me, you know, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear, I'm sure, that I'm very good to work for. Some words like that. And I said, actually, uh, Bill... In this instance, I'm not working for you. You're working for me. And there was a kind of, if you can have a silent gasp, there was a <laughs> silent gasp around the room. And he sailed right past it. We never had a moment's difficulty. At one point, I wrote in the galleys of the book, which we were working on, they'd go back and forth between us. Um, I wrote, this is the single most boring page I have ever read. 
And when he wrote back, when he sent the galleys back, he wrote next to that, no, page 632 <laughs> is even more boring. So you can see what our relationship was. It was really a wonderful, friendly, happy business from start to finish. You made a point of calling him Bill as opposed to Mr. President. He was no longer president, but it's kind of customary to say Mr. President. Yeah, well, not if you're saying, you can't say, I'm sorry, but we need a comma here, Mr. President. I could not imagine my saying something like that. Why not? Well, it was just too, it was too formal. It's a very complicated personal relationship, and uh, there was no way I could do it. And he didn't want it. He didn't need that kind of ego reinforcement. So the, your memoir is called Avid Reader, and you became an avid reader as a child. When did you realize there was such a thing as an editor? I didn't think about editing at all when I was reading as a child. I didn't think about it, of course, when I was reading as a child. But once I got a job, it was not easy for me to get a job because I was this scruffy guy, a quintessence of nerdiness before we knew that there were such things as nerds who had been overeducated, both at uh, Columbia <clears throat> College, Columbia University, and then at Cambridge in England. But I didn't seem very practical. I was very, very young looking. I always said I was, you know, I was a, I was a father at 21, and I'd looked 17, and I wandered around looking for a job. All I really wanted to do was read. And finally, through a chain of circumstances that could not have been predicted, I ended up at Simon & Schuster, which was then a rather small and very isolated publishing house. It was seen as very crass and commercial by the snobbish world of, uh, of publishing, although it had published already many very distinguished books. So I was there for 12 and a half years. I like to say I went in as a cabin boy and at the end was sort of an admiral. But it was very encouraging. People were thrilled to have inquisitive, nosy, brash people around. So I was welcomed rather than disdained. And it was a great experience. It was a wonderful place filled with wonderful people, not one of whom had ever worked in another publishing house and almost none of whom, barring myself, went on to work in other publishing houses. Since you looked so young, when you first started to edit authors, did they look at you like, who is this kid, and how is he going to help me? Well, I know Joseph Heller, when we first met, when I took an option on the book that became Catch-22, which was originally called Catch-18, uh, he told me later he was in his mid-30s. He'd been in the Army in the war, in the Air Force during the war. He, was, he had taught, and he had a very responsible job in uh, marketing in the magazine world. And up turned this kid to his eyes. And I, he was not the only one. Uh, I know several other people, when I came out to greet them at the desk when they first called on me at, at our offices, thought I was... Uh, an assistant, they didn't realize that I was who I was, whatever that was. So, you know, you mentioned um, Catch-22, which is a kind of dark, humorous book about World War II. And um, it was originally called Catch-18, but the war novel Mila 18 
you found out was going to be published, so you couldn't use 18 in the title, and you're the one who came up with 22. Catch-22 entered the vocabulary. Uh, Describe what Catch-22 means, and then tell me how it felt to have a title that you contributed to become an expression outside of the book. Well, it's gratifying, of course, but, you know, I've stopped thinking about that years and years ago. It's so embedded in the language now that I don't feel any connection to it. Uh, When that happens, when a word comes into existence like that, that becomes used and used and used, there's always a reason, and the reason is always that we need that word. Another word that comes out of literature that had that happened to was Kafkaesque. You know, Kafkaesque expresses something for people that there was no word for before Kafka. As I remember from the book, which I read um, many many years ago, Catch-22 was was, um, a kind of absurd catch where you couldn't win, like there was no good option. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, I was very nervous about it because it was such a huge success, and we had publicized it in so... uh, extraordinary a way that it was really what made me into a known quantity in the publishing world. And I stayed away from the book. I was always afraid that if I reread it, I wouldn't love it as much as I had loved it. And when its 50th anniversary came around, and there were being very various celebrations and acknowledgments and events surrounding that, I thought, I better read it again, because... I want to see what I feel about it now, in case I'm asked. So I did read it again for the first time in 50 years, and I was unbelievably relieved and and excited by loving it all over again. And I was sort of amused when I came upon a passage that I didn't quite like, and then remembered that I had really not liked it 50 years before, and by then the editing process was over and it was too late to do anything about it. So as I say, uh, I may not be talented, but I am consistent. Would you describe the publishing world when you started um, over 60 years ago uh, compared to how it is now? Well, it seems to me that it's become much more corporate and more about product than about books, but I think probably everybody feels that who's been around for a long time. It was always better in the good old days. I know Mr. Knopf, who founded Alfred Knopf in, I believe, 1915, would say when I got to know him somewhat, uh, he would say, this is the age of the slobs. You should have been around 40 years ago. I think books used to mean more to American culture than they do now. So many people don't read books anymore. Um, are you feeling that as as an editor and former publisher? I don't feel that at all. I think millions and millions of people are readers, and they need to read, and they want to read, and they do read. Of course, there are probably many more millions of people who don't, but that has always been true. I feel there's a tremendous interest in books these days, and they are celebrated, and they're thought about, and they're talked about, and they're read. So I do not feel that. But I have never been pessimistic about publishing and about readership. Do you remember the medium is the message, Marshall McLuhan? Marshall McLuhan, I do remember that. 
And the books were supposed to be dead then. And I thought it was a lot of old socks then. That's, by the way, a phrase Doris Lessing loved to use. I thought it was a load of old socks then, and I still think it's a load of old socks. Because there are millions of people who need and want and read books. Robert Gottlieb, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Listen, thanks, Terry. This was fun. Robert Gottlieb speaking with Terry Gross. Gottlieb is in the new documentary Turn Every Page, along with author Robert Caro. The film is about their long, sometimes contentious working relationship as editor and author. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs>